Welcome to the conference room with this week's guest, Tom Riley. Colin Powell asked a question. He says, let's go around the table and tell me when you've seen great leadership or define great leadership for me. Welcome to The Conference Room, a weekly podcast where business leaders and growth experts kindly share their experiences, actionable tips, and secrets to successfully grow a business. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help us out. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to The Conference Room. Good afternoon and welcome to The Conference Room. I'm joined by Tom Riley. Tom has a 30-year career forming, leading, scaling, and advising high-growth enterprise software and cybersecurity vendors. After an early career with IBM and running sales in the 90s for Lotus and Broadquest, he became CEO of Trigo, which was sold to IBM in 2004, then became president and CEO of ArcSite, which he scaled globally took through an IPO and exited to HP for over $1.5 billion, and then CEO of Cloudera, which he IPO'd with a $3 billion valuation and a $5.2 billion merger with Hortonworks. He served on the boards of companies such as Eloqua, Jive Software, Trasona, and Anomaly, and served as the chair of the Economic Development and Advisory Committee of the city of Sosalito. And I'm delighted that he's found time in his incredibly busy schedule to join us here in the conference room. So good afternoon, Tom Riley, and welcome to the conference room. Simon, good afternoon to you. And wow, I mean, it's amazing I'm invited to the conference room. I understand this is one of the top podcasts in our industry. It's a true honor to be here. Thank you very much. It's genuinely our honor to have you. So every hero has an origin story, and you are the hero of our story. So tell me, how did you get from just starting out in IBM through to being the CEO and now board advisor that you are? Well, it's uh, it's been a fun journey, 30-year journey, like you said. Um, I started out as a mechanical engineer, but I grew up in Silicon Valley. And when I grew up, it was more about Silicon than it was about software. But all my friends' dads were executives. And back then, it was a lot of dads, not many moms, but a lot more executives in the industry. And I those were my role models. And so I just said, I've got to play a role in the tech industry. And I set my sights on that. Started out as an engineer, switched into sales. Um, I was back in Boston, of all places, during the first IPO of Netscape and AOL when the internet was going crazy. And I'm like, I got to get back to California. And I can't miss this wave that's going on. This was the late 90s. And that got me back into smaller companies. I, back then, I was with IBM and Lotus, but I got into smaller companies and I learned about venture capital. I learned about capital structures. I learned about financing, minimally viable products, how to build sales forces. And I made a bunch of mistakes, but I learned a lot in the way. And then I uh, found my first CEO job. You mentioned it, Trigo. And uh, that was a tough one. Um, it was four years of... Uh, we could go under, we could be a great success. Fortunately, it turned out to be a great early success. Uh, and that led on to my subsequent jobs as CEO. And so, uh, as you point out, I'm a three-time CEO. I'm a hired NCO. I'm not a founder. I'm a guy that comes in and helps scale businesses. Right. So, 
that leads us really to what I wanted to talk about with you, which is the role of a CEO. Okay. So there are a number of different facets and something that's always intrigued me about being a CEO is that with most other leadership positions, if you're a head of sales, you're managing salespeople and you've been a sales guy. If you're the head of product, you've managed product managers so and you've done their job as well. Um, a CFO, he's responsible for finance and he's been a finance guy earlier in his career. So pretty much every job across the C-suite has done the jobs of the people that they're responsible for, with the exception of the CEO, all right? So I'm really interested to understand from your perspective as a three-time CEO and also as now someone that advises CEOs, first of all, what the role of a CEO is and also how a CEO manages some junior, a lot of senior people whose jobs they've never actually done before. Well, so there's many different types of CEOs. And early on, I had to define what kind of, what being a CEO meant to me. And um, and I was a hired-in CEO. So it wasn't like I came in and created the culture or I created the vision for a company. I was hired in. I had to find out my role. And uh, I'll tell an interesting story. I was at a venture capital event in Monterey, California. And uh, the guest speakers were Colin Powell, General Colin Powell, and Vice President Al Gore. And they sat us down at a table. There was 12 CEOs with these two, I mean, leaders. I mean, the ultimate of leaders, if you think of General Colin Powell and Al Gore, what he did. And uh, Colin Powell asked a question. He says, let's go around the table and tell me when you've seen great leadership or define great leadership for me. And unfortunately, he started to his left and I was sitting to his right. So I was the last one to share ideas. And of course, all the great ideas were kind of taken by the time it got to me. And I basically said, I'll know I've been a great leader when I've put myself out of a job. And I will know that when I wake up one day and I look at my calendar and there's no pressing meetings on my calendar and I decide to show up to work at 10 o'clock. I get to 10 o'clock and my inbox is empty. And I decide to go to an early lunch and I take someone out for a two-hour lunch. I come back from lunch, my calendar is empty, my inbox is empty, and there's no pressing matters. When I've achieved that, I know I'm a great CEO because a CEO is supposed to put themselves out of a job. And we can talk about how to do that, but that I shared that at that meeting. And uh, the look I got from Colin Powell was kind of like, what are you talking about? But uh, we then delve into, you know, what I call the three operating principles of the CEO. But uh, yeah, you really got to put yourself out of a job because ultimately, if you've got a great sales leader, a great engineer, a great CFO, a great product person, a great support person, and you're all aligned, there should be nothing left for a CEO to do. And that's uh, that's why I always find my goal. Wow. That's, not, that's amazing. Um, so you mentioned the three operating principles. What are they? So these are the three things that a CEO, I believe, needs to do extremely well. The first is the CEO needs to make sure you have a strategy in place. And a strategy is not just one thing. At any point in time, at the stage of a company, there's two to four things that a company has to do extremely well for it to succeed in that coming year or that coming phase of the company. The CEO needs to make sure that the company has a strategy. Doesn't have to come up with it themselves. 
but needs to make sure that it's very clear what are we trying to accomplish. We can go down how to do that. The second thing is the CEO needs to make sure that everybody is aligned behind it. So if you've defined your top three or four things that you need to do as a company, you need to make sure everyone is aligned behind it, they buy into it, and they're pushing in that direction. That means your board, your executive team, every employee in your company, your customers and partners, all aligned behind what you're trying to achieve. And then finally, you need to continually adjust and make changes by measuring how you're achieving um, that strategy and making sure that you know you you are um, continually heading towards it. So it's strategy, alignment, and adjustment. So when you talk about- You do that well, you do that well, you're good. Go ahead, Simon. Right, no, sorry, yeah. So when you talk about strategy, um, you, you're, I mean, absolutely, there are different phases that a company uh, is gonna go through, right? And with every, with every phase, there are gonna be um, priorities, sometimes conflicting priorities, shifting priorities, um, as to what those, as you say, two to four things, need to be you know need to be accomplished right so how does a ceo determine what those two to four things are well so i always believed i wasn't the smartest guy in the team um and so what i would do is i would bring the team together on a quarterly basis i would do three-day offsites with my leadership team and we would actually go through the process of determining what those priorities are because literally, what is it that we need to do to be extremely successful? And we would talk through them in great detail because you have so many things you can be doing and they all compete. But you want to just bring it to the forefront. What are the three or four most essential strategic imperatives for us? And as a team, you want to agree on that. So I'll give you some examples of what those are. Um, a good example would be like, are we a vertical solution play or are we a horizontal play? If we're going for verticals, what are the verticals we're going after? That is a strategic imperative. Are we a direct sales force or a channel sales force? Make that decision, strategic imperative. Are We want to change our pricing strategy. How do we go about doing that? Strategic imperative. Strategic imperatives tend to be cross-functional. It requires a whole company effort, and you want everyone aligned behind it. Non-imperatives are things like, let's hit our numbers. Let's hire to plan. Let's get a product out in time. Those are important things, but they're, they're the normal course of business. What you want to talk about is how do we shift our trajectory? And I always made sure that it was a team-led effort to define those, to come up with what the key milestones were, and to make sure everyone was aligned. And if someone's not aligned... As a CEO, your job is either get them in alignment or get them out. Because if everyone's not pulling on the same page, right? Everyone's not going in the same direction, you have internal friction. So, so um, couldn't you give me an example perhaps of where you might have had to change the strategy midstream, where people were all in on, right, this is the play, this is the strategy. And then through measuring and adjusting, it became clear that perhaps that wasn't the right strategy, whether it was because the strategy was wrong or external factors um, changed the reality so much that it became the wrong strategy. And then you had to make quite an aggressive course correction. Can you give me an example of maybe where that happened over the course of your career and how you dealt with that? 
unfortunately, there's many examples. <laughs> and, um, and so it's hard for me to even think of just one, but I will tell you why um, companies fail at executing against these important strategies. First off, they don't raise them to the level of a strategic imperative. They just raise it to the level of this would be great. Um, and let's try doing this. But then you don't, you have other people in the company that don't think it's a great idea. Uh, there's going to be internal friction. Things are going to slow you down or you don't, it's not a whole company effort. So let me think of an example. Um, let's say um, many companies were on-premise companies wanting to move to the cloud. Okay. This was a big transition 10 years ago. A lot of companies failed at it. Why did they fail at it? Not because they didn't have a good cloud offering, because they didn't change comp plans, right? Their sales force was measured on selling their old on-premise technology and not selling cloud technology, which might combat a consumption-based model. So they had different models, different comp plans. One example, the support department wasn't trained how to support cloud customers differently than on-prem customers. The marketing organization was still marketing the old on-prem solutions versus cloud solutions. Alliances were, were different. And so to really succeed, you have to go, what is every function's job in hitting this key imperative? And let's align the whole company behind it, and that'll get you there. I can go through many other examples where the whole company didn't align, and it was looked at one function's job to transition, and they came across all these internal obstacles. Right. So one company that, uh, that really is close to my heart is, is Arcsight. Um, Arcsight was a company that obviously you were the leader of. I was much, much lower down <laughs> insofar as that I was a recruiter helping Arcsight um, with uh, some of its growth, uh, particularly in Europe um, way back then. So I'm, I'd love to explore um, if you look through, if, if one were to examine your career, I'd like to think that ArcSight would be a highlight. Um, what do you think it was about ArcSight that took it from um, being just a, a handful of guys in kind of 2005, 2006 to over a relatively short period of time, within like two or three years, a successful IPO, with another couple of years of that, an incredible exit, and really establishing yourselves as a leader in a fairly competitive um, sector within the cybersecurity industry. What was it about ArcSight where, certainly from the outside looking in and being a relatively, I'd like to think quite close observer, everything just seemed to, it was like perfect storm after perfect storm of successes. So what was it about that that was, you know, if you could capture the lightning in a bottle, how would you describe it? Well, I, I'll bring it back to one thing and you'll appreciate this. We recruited an amazing team in Europe, and that just was it for us. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back to you. No, Simon, thank you. We actually did have a great team, and I do remember the recruiting you helped us do. And many of those leaders are my great friends today. So thank you for uh, building a great team. Um, so we were early in a market uh, called SIM, Security Information Event Management. Um. And we decided after raising a nice round of money that we were gonna be the first to expand outside the US. And now expanding outside the US, we were very deliberate about how we would do it. 
So we determine the countries we wanted to penetrate. Um, I will simplify it as um, we wanted to start with Western friendly countries because um, ArcSight was doing business with the US government. And so we wanted to do uh, business with countries that were aligned around the same cybersecurity initiatives. But then when we picked our countries, we said, we're gonna plant our flag in a country by getting one of the top five banks one of the top five telcos and a government agency. Okay. So one bank, one telco, one government agency. And if we do that in a country, we planted our flag, we will own every other vertical in that country because in cybersecurity, everyone looks to the banks, the telcos and the government for who the leaders are. So I remember one point we had planted our flag over 40 times, 40 different countries where we had planted our flag. And it was that expansion strategy that allowed us to kind of own the high end of the market. And we then had, you know, healthcare providers and retailers and CPG companies, but ArcSight became the um, kind of the gold standard for SIM. That then led to ArcSight was very smart at publishing its data format called the common event format. And so since we're an integration play, and since we were in the largest government agencies, the largest banks, the largest telcos, every new cybersecurity entrant would write their log files to that format. And so it just became this network effect. And so I think it was those two things that kind of really helped us uh, set the pace in our category. So moving on from that, um, what were the steps that you took um, to achieve such a, I mean, I'm gonna, I, I like to talk a little bit about the IPO and then talk about the uh, uh, the acquisition uh, by HP, okay? Because uh, these were obviously two seminal events, okay? So first of all, talk me through the IPO from how it all kind of came, from the kind of early inception of, hey guys, do you think we should float? Through to the actual sort of success that, that, that happened, okay? Talk me through the various sort of steps that, that you took, that you led, and the kind of key elements that played out. Okay, this is, a great story, but also a painful story. Um, so we all along, we viewed an IPO as just one milestone in our journey. And I remember as a leadership team talking about this consistently, it's like an IPO is just a financing event and it's a stepping stone on our journey to um, really being a, a great enduring company. So we began our roadshow in January of 2008. Now everyone remember 2008, but uh, not everyone may remember January of 2008. In January 2008, um, we are in New York and we're doing our training session where you go train your bankers. And while we're in the midst of our training session, uh, the first bank collapses. I think it was Lehman Brothers at the time collapses. This is very timely because we just had Silicon Valley Bank collapse this week. Yeah. So I remember this very well, right? A bank goes under. And we had to pause our IPO. And um, we stopped it. Pulling an IPO is hard, but as long as you didn't start your roadshow, it's okay. And then uh, we're like, what do we do? And three weeks later, a company in uh, France called Société Générale, SocGen, a large bank, had a major, major cybersecurity breach. 
And it made world news. It was one of the largest banks ever to be breached by an insider threat. And it was on that we said, the market is ready for a cybersecurity story because we have a technology that could stop that at SockGen. SockGen became a customer then after. But um, so we went out in mid-February and actually we did our IPO. We priced it on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2008. Uh, we were the only company doing an IPO roadshow in the world at the time. And we were greeted by investors saying, what are you doing here? And our response was, hey, we build software companies. We're not market timers. Our plan was to go public at this time. We are ready as a company. And that's why we're here. And uh, we had actually a successful IPO. Um, and of course, we're, our valuation was depressed because every company's valuation was depressed, but we were in the public markets. And uh, we saw our stock grow 10x in the next you know, 18 months. So it was a good journey. And, and in terms of bringing in the outside support to do that, how did you find the right team? How did you build the... Uh... The structure around you. I would imagine floating a company is very different to running one. So how did you build the structure around you to achieve something that at that point you'd never done before? Well, um, there is, when you are ready to take a company public, There, it was my first time. And so I was learning on the job, but you're surrounded with many people that have done it before. So first off, your banking advisors you will hire not one bank, you will hire three or four banks who will help you get ready, who will prepare you for the process, who will train you on your presentations, who will teach you how to answer questions, who will explain the different types of investors. Um, and as long as you are one that is willing to learn and you're a good student, uh, you will do well. And it's an amazing experience. Um, I will, uh, I mean, it was just uh, an incredible experience. And uh, I've done it a couple times. Um, the second time, a little better than the first time. But uh, you're, you're surrounded with with advisors and great people. Okay. And then moving on from that, a couple of years later, um, you took the company, if you like, private again to then um, sell to to HP. So tell me how that all kind of came about. And I mean, I remember um, my recollection of it was I was actually in France on vacation with my family. And I got a text from one of your senior lieutenants saying, hey, do me a favor. Can you just let the people that we've got a final interview for this and this and this job know that everything's OK, despite the fact there's going to be a press conference, a press release going out later on today. So <laughs> that was my that was my experience of it. And then having to like feverishly like, call people and, and let them know, don't worry, it's fine. Um, so but for, from your perspective, what was the... Um, the first of all, what was it that triggered the decision to actually do that? And then the process that was involved in effectively you know, taking the company private again to then um, uh, sell to uh, ultimately to, a, to HP. Okay, so here's uh, something about being a public company. When you are a public company, you are always for sale. Someone can buy one share, someone can buy a thousand shares, you can't stop them. And someone can buy all your shares and it is difficult to stop them. So while we we're a public company, there was a very large software company, we'll go unnamed at this point, where the CEO was pretty much adamant that he wanted to 
acquire ArcSight and merge the companies. And um, he took an approach of courting me and would come out and explain why he thought this would be a good idea. Was I in alignment? I would say, no, I don't think so. He'd come back three months later. I think it would be a great idea. You know, you want to try merging companies? I say, no, I don't think so. We've got a long runway. He came back the third time and he said, this dinner is going to be a little different. I have full alignment behind my board to make an offer for your company at a 35% premium. That's your then trading share price. And there's a thing, kind of unwritten rule, that if you get offered a 30% premium, you, you're kind of thrown into a fiduciary responsibility of giving your shareholders a great return. So think if like on a Friday, you're worth a dollar and on a Monday, you could be worth a dollar 30, right? People can make great money. And if you turn down that offer, you're actually at risk of lawsuits, right? If it comes out, you're a public company and you didn't give the return. So um, I'm like, oh, this is serious. Um, I called the board and I said, there's an offer coming in. And it's going to be a 30 to 35% premium. What do we do? And the board's like, well, all we can do is try to maximize that offer. It's hard for us to say no. And not that they didn't want to. It's the risk of saying no, right? To face lawsuits, what have you. So uh, the offer did come in. Um, at that time, that summer, uh, part of a CEO's job is to keep close ties to all your strategic partners in the event that you want to call one of them up and say, I've got an inbound interest. Are you wanting to play? And I had just met with the then head of software for Hewlett Packard, um, had met with him maybe two months before, had a few, had a lunch and coffee with him after that. And I was able to ring him up and say, hey, there's a strategic inbound coming in. Um, I think we could be a great partner with HP. And uh, that's how the conversations played out. Wow. Wow. So how did the first software company react when it was like, actually, we're going to go over there? Um, it was hard for me to communicate that because the CEO of this company was, it was and is a great uh, industry leader. Um, but my responsibility is to maximize return to shareholders. Uh, and also find the right home for our customers, our employees, our technology, and our vision. And um, uh, Hewlett-Packard, in addition to this other company, uh, fulfilled that. And even when we were in Hewlett-Packard, the team had a great, great run. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to my huge uh, joy, I was able to continue working with uh, with them for a couple of years, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, for a while. It was a company inside a company, and it was it was it was wonderful. It really was, and uh, particularly with the mergers that happened with uh, with ArcSight and Tipping Point and Fortify, it was uh, you know when those all those technologies within um, HP Software all kind of you know interlinked. It was uh, it was real a real joy. So uh, so moving on, the obviously. Um, the experiences that you had at ArcSight served you well at Cloudera when they went through an IPO. How different was um, perhaps either the IPO or the acquisition that you'd experienced at ArcSight to the merger that you led? 
when Cloudera merged with Hortonworks. How different was that? Very, very different. <laughs> um, very, very different. Um, so as we started this podcast, um, I was hired in as a CEO to Cloudera. Um, Cloudera had four amazing founders, brilliant, brilliant founders. Uh, and they founded the company at the same time that a peer company, Hortworks, was being created and founded around the same vision. Um, Cloudera and Hortworks are in the open source space. And actually, about 70 to 80% of the code that each supported, developed, and sold was shared code in the open source space. So you now have two companies that are almost identical from a code standpoint. And they're competing fiercely. And competition is great. But in this situation, it wasn't that great because the two companies were, it was almost a race to the bottom because there wasn't much, it was hard to differentiate. And so they differentiated on price, a little bit on model, business model. But it was hard to differentiate on code. And each picked different open source projects around the periphery, but they weren't that differentiated. So I was a big believer that this would be a tremendous opportunity to combine these two companies because they have so much in common and you're not rationalizing a product portfolio as much as you're just aligning two companies with shared vision to compete against bigger guys, right? We're competing against uh, Oracle's database division or SAP's database and, you know, kind of traditional databases and taking them to this modern uh, platform that uh, is what's called Hadoop. And so, um, uh, but it was a very hard merger to do. And in that there was so much history between these com companies as competitors that it was hard to bring the people together, even though you shared a common vision. And it took uh, myself, my leadership at Cloudera and the leadership of Hortonworks, three attempts to, uh, to bring the companies together. Um, but uh, once we did that, things like rationalizing products in the traditional enterprise software place, when companies merge, it could take them and competitors with you know, similar products. It could take them two, three, four years to rationalize the product line to help one customer migrate over or both customers migrate. Uh, in this case, we were able to do it in less than six months because so much of the code was shared. And so it was, uh, it was a great journey. Wow. No, absolutely. And, and I can imagine going from kind of competitors, almost like, you know, um, two countries that have been at war. Okay, now there's a peace. Um, we have to start kind of trading together and working together. But in, on a company level, it, it's almost kind of the same sort of mentality of getting people to sort of see past the previous competition and now being able to work together. And it's not easy. Um, the technology was easy. The customer base was easy. Uh, it was uh, the people aspect, the cultures that are hard to merge. Um, and we wanted to do a as close to a true merger as possible, which means let's bring together two leadership teams. But when you bring together two leadership teams, that means you've got to pick one of the leaders from the legacy companies to go forward. That was a very difficult process. Let's bring together two cultures. 
Well, to do that, you have to learn what were the cultures of each company and which ones you want to survive, which ones you want to retire, those aspects. And then how do you create this new culture? Um, how do you bring together your offices? I mean, we competed, you know, and you have uh, people are tied back then to their offices, much more so than they are now. But uh, brands, colors, everything was, it's a very difficult thing to, to pull off a merger. Um, so, uh, and, and it's a lot of, it has, it comes down to people. Uh, obviously people have great pride and when they're competing, um, you know, you, you win and lose in many different ways, but everyone likes to remember the wins and, uh, that's, uh, that creates a number of challenges. Yeah, I'm sure. And even little things like, you know, you know, uh, if it was Hortonworks offices in say San Francisco, then to the Cloudera boys feel that they've been acquired, right? They've been taken over because it's now a Hortonworks or if it's that particular product or their colors on the box or whatever, you know, making it genuinely feel that we're now, you know, a merged entity, not, well, we were just kind of taken over and they won, you know? So uh, yep. having achieved this, it, it must have been incredibly satisfying looking back that so it was something that was truly achieved. Well, and, you know, you asked earlier about an IPO and if you've never done it, you know, are there people that can teach you? And yes, you have all these bankers, everyone teaches you. Um, a merger of equals there's not many books out there. There's not many lessons, you know, there's not many people that can teach you. And uh, so, you know, I, I would say we, we did a lot of things great. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, but uh, in the end, it, it, it turned out great for the company. Right, the companies. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So there's a whole other area that I want to talk to you about, um, which we're not going to have time for today. So hopefully I can twist your arm to come back and talk again, which is about, how a CEO works with a board. And now you are on, as we said before, you're on several boards and you work as an advisor uh, to, uh, to CEOs. So that's a whole other area that if I can twist your arm to come back, I'd really like to, uh, to dig into. Uh, but in the meantime, taking a moment to look forward of the companies that you are currently uh, advising, what's making you most excited? You've probably got... I would imagine a few books put away from the successes that you've had, you don't need to get up and go to work. So what is it that's getting you out of bed and inspiring you to keep going? Well, um, there's a company I know that I, I believe you've helped, uh, a Ukrainian-based cybersecurity company called Sock Prime. Yes. Um, I am a seed investor in this company going back two years. I invested before the war broke out in Ukraine. And um, I have just been fascinated being associated with the challenges this company has building a cybersecurity company with the backdrop of a war. Uh, and most of their employees at the time were in Kyiv. And um, it, is a, it is a true, true challenge. And to see this young team to have stepped up to have made some key decisions uh, and to continue to grow their business, all the while taking care of their employees and taking care of their country. So the, the men on this team have uh, volunteered their time to be on the cyber defense for Ukraine. Uh, so during the day, they're building a company. During the night, they're volunteering their time defending their nation. 
And um, I, I sit here in San Francisco uh, just wanting to help out in any little way I can. I'm so pleased with um, how they are performing. And uh, that's, you know, uh, as an advisor, um, you you want to give advice in the most direct and meaningful way without consuming time of a team. And so this is, this is one team I'm trying to advise um, as best as possible. This past week, this past weekend, I spent, you know, many hours with the COO of the company dealing with all their money in Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, what was our plan? Um, how to do that? And, um, you know, you've got a Ukrainian team that really doesn't understand kind of the operations of a financial institution here, but all their money was tied up. Now, it turned out right in the end, but uh, a fun weekend, needless to say. I'm sure. I'm sure. So if people wanted to reach out or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, go to my LinkedIn profile. That's under Tom Riley. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, probably the easiest way. Okay, great stuff. And I'll make sure there's a, a link um, in the show notes for them, uh, for people to be able to click on and to find you on LinkedIn. So hopefully I can twist your arm to come back and talk to me again. Uh, about the role of a board. But in the meantime, Tom Riley, thank you so much for joining us here in the conference room. Thank you for having me on the conference room. It's my honor. This thing is uh, a great podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Coming up next week on the conference room, we welcome back friend of the conference room, crowdfunding and TV expert, Dr. Letitia Wright. There are people out there trying to promote a book. A show is great for that. There are people down there trying to promote their courses. There are people who just want to have commercials. Having commercials is just a very small part of what the revenue models can be. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, to see all the other episodes and to get access to the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your network or better still, go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. It'll only take you a moment, but it'll mean the world to us. And please don't hesitate to tell us which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To get in touch, drop us a line in the comment section or send us a message on social media. Just search for The Conference Room Podcast or me, Simon Lader, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm always open to a conversation. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when a new episode goes live every week. Thanks so much for listening to The Conference Room, and until next time, keep talking. Mm -hmm.